All right. Uh, good afternoon. The, uh, it's my pleasure to uh, have Dr. Mary Ryan from Edinburgh speak uh, today on competency, uh, contingency tables by Marco Chain Monte Carlo. She's originally from Dublin. Uh, she did her uh, BSc in Computer Science and Mathematics from UCD in 1993 and followed it with a Master's in uh, Computer Science in UCD again. After that, she spent about four years in Warwick getting her PhD, then a uh, two-year stint in Denmark, and then in Leeds, followed by that. And she's been a lecturer at Edinburgh from 2003. Her interests are in algorithms, uh, algorithms accounting and sampling, learning theory, evolutionary trees, computational biology, pseudo-random generators, and quite a bit of probability as well. Okay, so th thanks very much, Vijay, for the introduction. Um, so this is not very recent work, but I decided to talk about it because it's about Markov chains, and I thought more people were likely to be interested in that than some of my more recent work. So and it's hopefully it's going to be not too technical, but if people have more technical questions, they can ask me afterwards. If anyone has a question while I'm giving the talk, you should just stop me. And um, I'm quite happy to explain anything on the blackboard that isn't in my slides that people would like explained. So, um, so I guess I'll start off by telling you what a contingency table is and why we do care about them and why we might want to sample them. And then I'm going to mention the Markov chain Monte Carlo method. I'll discuss previous work and I'll, talk, I'll show my multi-commodity flow analysis for the Markov chain that I'm talking about and show that this implies rapid mixing when the number of rows is constant. So, so the input in terms of describing these structures consists of lists of row sums and lists of column sums, all positive integers. And And then a, a table, the structure that we're interested in, is any matrix of the appropriate dimensions, n by n matrix, of non-negative integers that satisfies both the row constraints and the column constraints simultaneously. So that's where the, that's the reason the problem is interesting, is because it must satisfy the row constraints and also the column constraints. So the constraints are sort of working against each other, so it's a bit more interesting. Um, so we will assume all, throughout the talk that the total of the row sums is equal to the total of the column sums. Why would we need that? Just, just to make sure you're actually listening. Well, if you think about it, the row sums, any solution x must each, each along the total of all the values along a row is required to satisfy that row sum. So you can see the double sum up there, the j equals 1 to n is summing along a row and that must be ri. And well then you're just going to change the variable and sum around columns first and then rows and then you can see that this must equal the total of the column sum. So it's just a way of saying that both the total of the row sums and the total of the column sums is equal to the total of all the entries in your matrix. So obviously the input you are given must satisfy that constraint. And so we're going to use this this number n is going to be the table sum, we sometimes refer to it because it can be very large. So this would have some, in, uh, some influence on the amount of time you might need to sample these objects. The running time would be influenced by the size of the numbers, which is not always the case. So I work in the general field of sampling and counting of combinatorial structures. A lot of the time the structures you're interested in might be defined on a graph or something similar, but there wouldn't really be many numbers associated with it. But in this case, the, num the size of the integers will have some influence on what you want to do. So here's an example where you were given these row totals and these column totals and you have got a table sum of 56 and you can see there that's just one solution to those given inputs of row and column sums. And if you pick an arbitrary column or an arbitrary row, you'll see that the, the, the black values that I've drawn in, they meet all the constraints simultaneously. If you want to test one while you're just looking at it there, you see that's one solution. But perhaps here's a more interesting solution because it's sort of easier to understand how you could arrive at this solution than the one on the previous, on the previous slide. So this is another solution and the way this one was constructed is as follows. You start in the northwest corner 
and you look at the current minimum of your remaining column and your remaining row, which for the top one was the minimum of 2 and 11, yeah? so that then you place that value in the box that you're currently sitting at, and you will have wasted either the column or the row when you do that move. In this case, you wasted the column, so you moved right. Yeah. And then you proceed again with the 4 on the bottom and with 11 minus 2, which is 9, uh, on the top row. And then you took the minimum of those and that was 4. Again, you've wasted a column, so you move right. And now you have a remainder of 5 on that first row and the value 6 on the column, so the minimum of those is 5. And this time you have finally wasted the top row, so you walk down. So that's the way you would construct just one example, that, that method will give you one contingency table and allow you to, sh to see, as we draw on the next slide, that, that this lemma holds. So if you're just concerned with whether a table exists for those inputs, the necessary condition that we observed a few slides ago, that the total of the row sums equal the total of the column sums, that necessary condition is in fact sufficient to guarantee the existence of one of these tables. And you can prove that fairly simply by induction. If you just have one column, which is a very simple case, then you just have some column total and a bunch of row sums. And the only solution which exists is to set that each cell to have the corresponding row total. So it's clearly true in the case of one column. So if you have more than one column, well, then you know that the final column, k plus 1, is certainly no larger than the total of all the row sums. Okay, and it's much smaller in practice. So all you do is you partition the, that column total, that final column, into m parts, where none of the parts exceed the row sums. And you just take an arbitrary such column, and you modify the row sums, to make these ri dashed sums, and you're guaranteed by construction that those will still be positive because of the way that you constructed them, and then you just use your induction hypothesis with one fewer column in your input because you've taken care. So actually the method I showed you, the northwest corner rule, is, um, well, at least when you treat a column, in the case where you actually eliminate a column, it's a simple case of making a partition of of the column total into m parts. And the simple case there is to take it all in one cell if it fits. So the question of if you're given an input of a list of row sums and a list of column sums to check whether contingency table exists or, and to construct one table is actually very simple. You just have to add up your totals on the rows and check that that equals the totals on the columns. But we're not going to be interested in just finding, checking existence. We're going to be interested in the whole set of possible fillings in you might have for your table and how we would be able to choose one randomly from that entire set. And that's what the rest of my talk is about. So it might be the case that there's some probability people in here. If there are, I should tell you that that this is a discrete Markov chain that I'm going to be talking about. So sometimes it's good to get that out of the way. I was giving a talk in Edinburgh a couple of years ago and I had gone 40 minutes to the talk and Sergei Foss was in the audience and he put his hand up and he said, excuse me, is this a discrete Markov chain? So I get this out of the way first. So anyway, we, we're going to sample uniformly at random. And first I guess I should tell you why we might care about doing that. So. It's also, I guess, if, if I'm to be honest, I'm being a little bit, I mean, this is, this is our reason, this is our motivation, but it doesn't mean the algorithm that I show you is very practical in the context of my motivation. So contingency tables, though, they do have some practical application, and that is to tabulate the result of two-way surveys of large populations, where you might have you know, a very, very large population, say the population of um, some state in the United States, say the population of California, and perhaps then the, the rows of the columns, per, the rows of the table might correspond, say, to counties of California, and the columns 
might correspond to income, for example, income brackets, there might be five columns or something. And in such, in such situations, perhaps more likely when you've got, um, when the data being tested is medical data, you would be concerned with how significant the, the correlation is between the, the partitioning on the rows and the partitioning on the columns. So you're looking for a measure of somehow correlation without knowing really what the, what the correlation is. And this chi-square statistic, to some extent, measures a significance level. It returns a number of the, of the given contingency table Y. And it is used in practical statistics. And basically, the question is how significant the results you might get for your survey is. You'll get a number out of your chi-square statistics. However, um, Diaconus and Efron um, argue that what is relevant is not the actual value of the chi-square statistic, but where that value lies in relation to all the other tables that could have been used to make those row and column sums. So they, they, they argue in this paper in 1985 that what you should be measuring is not the number, but how that number compares to the chi-square statistics of many tables which would have the same row and column sums which motivates the question of, could we estimate the fraction of these tables which have the same row and column sums as our survey and which have a lower chi-squared value? And then that would give you an estimate of how far away from the average value your particular table is. And that motivates the problem of sampling contingency tables almost uniformly at random. So you've got a large, a large possible set of possible contingency tables and what we would like was to be to draw a rather large number of those, estimate the chi-squared value of all those tables, take an average over the many samples we might have drawn and compare that to the value we have for ourselves. So is that fairly clear to everybody? Yeah, so you should also, if you think I'm going too slow or too, or too fast, any kind of input is fine. But, but I guess, to be honest, the, the algorithm that I get for doing the sampling is not a practical algorithm, even though it's, it's interesting in a theoretical sense. It's not particularly practical, even though it is actually the one which tends to be used, the, the actual result we get is not particularly practical. So what we're going to look for is a fully polynomial, almost uniform sampler. And it takes any list of row and column sums, and what we would like it to do is to run in polynomial time and to get us a random sample from that pool of contingency tables. And we require, as a measure of how good our algorithm is, that it should be possible for it to bring you to any <coughs> desired precision, any desired closeness towards the, the true uniform distribution, while giving a bit of extra time, which would depend one over log epsilon, where epsilon is the variation distance away from the uniform distribution. And it must run in polynomial time in the dimensions of the matrix and also the logarithm of the table sum. So how would we do that? I mean, it's not... We'll see the, the way we go about it in a moment, but if you think about how a basic way of doing it, we know we, we need the cell bounds never to be larger than the corresponding row and column values, but if you were thinking about doing a cell-by-cell -cell approach, maybe tossing coins to get a value for, say, the first cell, and then looking at the induced row and column sums and trying to work out how the others would be, how you could sample for the others, the problem is the actual value that you give to a particular cell, xij, may influence to a large extent the number of fillings in. So this kind of cell-by-cell -cell approach is unlikely to get you uh, an algorithm which would have a, the uniform distribution. Even though it's quite a nice, simple approach, it, it's hard to measure how it would get you in terms of the uniform distribution, which is what you want. Another way of thinking about it, which also doesn't help you too much, is if you had no column sums, which is a much easier problem, you could try to assign the rows independently of each other. Yeah. And um, in that case, 
it would be a lot easier because you just have to, for each row, you have to come up with some partition of the row sum into that many boxes. And that's something that's it's well known how to do that. Yeah? And the, the, the number of such partitioning is very well known. You can write it down as a binomial coefficient. Except that if you did that on a row, an independent row-by-row row basis, you no longer meet the column sums. So what we're going to do is we're going to, we have both, so we're going to use the Markov chain Monte Carlo approach. And the Markov chain Monte Carlo approach can be used in many settings where you have a large state space, which here is written as omega. And you just have some Markov chain which, which allows you to walk from one state to another state, so which governs how you walk among the states of that state space. And you, would, you can think of that as being governed by a transition matrix, which would tell you the probability of moving from state X to state Y in a single step. And this is a discrete mark, time Markov chain, so you just do one step at a time. Um, you would never, in the, in the setting that I'm talking about, you'd never, ever, ever write down the transition matrix for the reason that your, your state space will be exponentially large in terms of the size of the input. So what you would instead, write down the rules for how you move from, from one state to another, which I will do in a few slides. But when you use this approach, the Markov chain should be ergodic, and that will mean it converges to some stationary distribution. And all that tells you is that if you run the chain forever, there is some distribution called pi. As you take your distribution into the limit, you will eventually settle down to this stationary distribution. So that doesn't mean you settle down to one state. It means you settle down to a distribution which is governed by a vector of probabilities and that as you continue in the Markov chain that does not change, the stationary distribution. But also we will require that the stationary distribution should be uniform, in other words that all the states should have the same chance in this limiting distribution. Which is, this is quite a nice method and it's applied in many areas and it, it's also applied both in practice and also in theory. So it's something that's actually used a lot in practice. But um, all, all the method, the way it's applied is that you just start at some state. You don't even care which one it is, x0. You just start at x0 and you keep making steps of the Markov chain. So you apply changes. You walk from one state to another according to the laws of your transition matrix. And you keep doing that, and after you think the chain has come close to the stationary distribution, then you stop it, and you say, I take, take this state as my random sample. And the key to applying this method is, the chain, it should be easy to implement. So it should be something where the steps, the moves of the chain, are not too difficult to describe, and that they can be done fairly easily. If you look and look at the state you're at, and you can see easily what are your options for the next step, and then you just toss a few coins and move on to the next one. So usually they're sort of little local moves. These, these moves are usually sort of, would sort of change just a few parts of your combinatorial structure rather than changing many parts of it. But also you need to prove that the chain will mix in a, in a good amount of time. In the world of computer science, you always say polynomial time. In practice, polynomial time is not good enough n square time you, need, you would really need in practice. You, know, you need something better than what I am able to prove. And often, this, state, this size of the state space is exponential in the description of your input. So, so that means that you're going to have to work quite a bit to prove that it's converged. It means that the amount of time, the number of steps you, you're willing to do is much, much less than the size of the state space, yeah. Which also sort of constrains quite a bit, you know, how, how you know, means that you're gonna to have to work to, to prove this result. Is there any questions? So, so there are many Markov chains for contingency tables, and we're gonna meet a few of them. The simplest one is this one called the Diaconus chain. It's due to Percy Diaconus, and it just says, you've got all these rows and all these columns, just pick two of the rows from randomly, pick two of the columns randomly, and then do the following update. Leave most of the cells the same, 
but the four cells in this little in these pair that are given to you by the pair of rows and pairs pair of columns you will just do plus plus one minus one minus one plus one yeah and you can notice that in this column the column total will not change because you've got a plus one and a minus one in each column and you've done a plus one and a minus one in each row and all the rest of it has stayed exactly the same so you wouldn't you would still be sitting inside the state space is what that means um, the only thing to note to notice is that um, this approach actually this this chain is actually a slow chain and the reason you can be sure that it's a slow chain is because of this table sum the capital N you're only making moves of size one so in the case where you have a very large N it doesn't matter what you do you can't expect to mix in polynomial time because you would you would never be doing it making enough changes so there's a very natural um, generalization of the diaconus chain which is called the two by two heat bath or the dire greenhill chain whichever you prefer in that case you also choose two rows and two columns randomly same as before and then you have two little cells so so what you basically do is you might have a table like this and this might um, maybe with five five rows and some number of columns and um, suppose you you have decided to choose these rows and the columns you have cho chosen is um, then you've chosen these two columns so these are the ones which you have chosen and that's going to identify to you four cells of the table in the, in the same way as before so that's I1, I2 and J1, J2 and it marks out two, two little cells and depending on the values which were sitting in there um, suppose that was 8 and that was 1 and this was 10 and this was 1 here well given the values that are in those cells at the current time that gives you little induced row sums so the induced row sum there is 9 and the induced row sum there is 11 the induced row sum here is 11 and the induced or the induced column sums are 9 and 11 also in that case that's not by design that I made them to match that's just by accident I would have planned to do it otherwise I didn't didn't want to do that but anyhow that's what we've got so so what you do now instead of adding plus or minus one to those four cells you think about all the ways that that could be filled in that little box so you sort of think about taking that box away as a little table a two by two table with these row and column sums and choosing new inputs to match those row and column sums and you can see in this case that if a, capital N was very large then some of the cells are going to be very large and in that case you'd have larger values here and you have the option to change them by by more than you would have otherwise so so this is what you do is you choose the X uniformly at random from all the possible two by two tables which would have those row and column sums and you only need to choose the top left hand corner to do that because once you know what goes in here then you have only one possibility for here one possibility for here and then this one same as before so you only have to change this guy so you just have to choose one uniformly at random and the rule is that you choose that little top left corner that it must be in the range from zero to the minimum of the row and column sums that's very clear right because we want these all to be non-negative so you can't put a value that's bigger than nine in this case these are the same just and also you have to make it big enough that you don't put too much in here because if you put a huge number in here then it could be that for some columns when you subtract it out then you get a negative value here so that's what this constraint means and basically you get the, putting those constraints together you get that all x is in the range from the maximum of zero in this value up to the minimum of these two values are okay and you just choose one randomly and you move to that one 
So th that's an easy thing to implement on a step-by-step -step basis because every time you calculate a little range and you toss a couple of coins and you put your X in and you update your table. So our chain is going to, our main chain is the Dyer-Greenhill chain. Um, I think in practice some, some applications use this 2x2 two two heat bath. This is the one I just showed you. Um, some, sometimes they use the diaconus chain if the numbers aren't too large. But they just, they don't know how well it mixes, but they just guess and they stop it. They believe that it, converge, that it converges fairly fast. Is it obvious that you can reach all possible tables from the beginning ones with this procedure? Oh, um... Yeah, I mean, you just, if you were to think about two tables which are different, you can take the difference of them. And you take one, say, which is too big in your original, well, he must have one which is too small in another place, and you fix three and hurt one, so you're winning, yeah? So if you iterate it, then you eventually get close to, yeah, yeah. So, and actually, it would be a consequence anyway of our proof. In fact, because part of our proof is to set up not just a path between any two states, but a collection of paths between all pairs of states which have good conductance in the context of the entire Markov chain. So it's a byproduct of, of what we do, even though I don't show, you, show all the details. Um, our techniques very much, unfortunately, rely on the number of rows being constant, and it would be really nice to prove that, that this algorithm, or even any algorithm, would sample contingency tables in the general case, because many, many cases of the contingency table problem are, are, have been solved, but the general case is still open. So, so I'm going to talk first about previous work before I go on to talk about the proof. Um, in, in this world, it, sampling is thought of as being very closely related to counting, and that's because we're interested in sampling from the uniform distribution. So it's sort of, they're twinned problems, the problems of drawing a uniform sample and from counting the size of the state space, they're closely related. And you often have this, you have this partner concept to the sampling algorithm concept we talked about, which is the FPRAS, where you would take the, the input as before, of your contingency tables and hopefully in polynomial time in terms of the same parameters exactly as before, um, you would hope to, except, except for your, you also have a confidence parameter, you hope to return a value which is very close to the count of contingency tables and it's a relative closeness. So if your, ta if your set is larger, you're allowed to be a bit more wrong. So it's a, fr a fractional, a fraction, you're supposed to be a fraction, only a fraction wrong. Um, but there has been some work done on sampling and on counting, so that's why I mentioned the definition for counting. Um, for self-reducible structures, it's well known that the concepts of, that, you that given a, an efficient polynomial time log epsilon algorithm for s sampling, if and only if you have the FPRAS for counting. Um, that's that's self-reducible, so what it means is that you can partition your entire state space um, in a nice way that will allow you to move between sampling and counting. So the best way of thinking about it is if you were thinking about, you could decompose the set of solutions to your, your, to, um, of your combinatorial structures in such a way as to reduce the size of the input that you're working with. So either in our case it would be to reduce the dimensions or the table sum and also partition it in this way so that each of the components that you come up with are also exactly of the same type of problem as your original one. So problems such as perfect matching are very nicely described as self-reducible structures because you could consider one edge of your graph and you know that all perfect matchings would either have that edge or not have that edge. So if they don't have that edge, you just t represent those solutions very easy by picking the edge out. 
and the ones which do have that edge, you represent them very easily by picking the edge and its neighbours out. Yeah? And both of them would be exactly of the same type. So in fact, contingency tables are not known. They're sort of unusual in this area. They're not strictly self-reducible. You can show using the same sort of argument as you use in the self-reducible world that if you have the almost uniform sampling, you are able to get the FPRAS for approximate counting. And that's because when you do, when you see the proof for self-reducibility, for, for moving from, from using sampling to get counting, you don't need the full power of self-reducibility. You only need one side of your branching process to still be in the original set. I can tell you after is probably a better thing to do. We can take it offline. But they're not quite self-reducible. So these earlier work on count, the counting results that I show you, they give you some kind of sampling algorithm, but not quite as good as the full FPAUS that I mentioned on the previous page. It's not going to be quite as good as that. Is that, is that an OK answer? Yeah, we, I can explain more to you when we finish. Um, so previous work are that... Um, Barvinak showed that you could count exactly in polynomial time if the dimensions of the table are constant. So that's, that's just due to his result that shows that you can count the lattice points of any polytope exactly in polynomial time if the dimension of the polytope is constant. Um, Diaconis and Salaf cost were able to show in the same scenario both rows and columns, their number of them is constant. They were able to show that their chain mixes uniformly at random in pseudo-polynomial time. So all the pseudo-polynomial time means is that they have, instead of having log of capital N in their, in their running time, they have capital N. And that's, it's very obvious why that is. It's because they only allow themselves the plus and minus one. I think it's quite likely that you could lift their proof using the, um, the heat bath chain and you'd be able to remove the pseudo from the pseudo-polynomial time there, in this case of M and N constant. So there's also been previous work done then on the case of two rows and a variable number of columns. Um, it was shown that the problem of counting those cannot be done exactly. Well, we don't believe it can be done exactly because it's a number P complete problem. And number P complete is the analog of NP complete for counting problems. So you wouldn't expect to get an exact answer. And it's also known that the two by two heat bath mixes rapidly. This is the chain that we're thinking about in this talk. It mixes rapidly in the, in the two row case. And I have to say the proof is a lot nicer than, than our proof because they're able to make the result go through using coupling. And the proof is much neater and gives a much better result than, than we get in this talk. And also some work that was done in the past, quite a good while ago, by Dyer, Cannon and Mount and, and sort of then improved a little bit by Morris, was to show actually that if all the row and column sums are very large, um, that you could always sample and count. And really what that means is that, that your polytope, it's a, it hasn't, all it tells you is that it's very fat, the polytope is. What basically those conditions mean is that you've got a polytope where you've got a large number of lattice points sitting inside it. And then you can use the volume method of um, Dyer, Cannon and Freeze to, to, to estimate the number of these tables. So th that's the way that works, is when all the row and column sums are big enough, then the, the count of the contingency tables is close to the volume of a related polytope. And then you can also use this volume algorithm to sample. And also, together with Martin Dyer, who's one of my co-authors on, on this work, we had previously shown that there was an FPRAS to approximately count the number of contingency tables if the number of rows was was constant. But it's a very different algorithm to the Markov chain. It was a combination of dynamic programming and volume of a convex polytope, and it says nothing about the mixing time of any Markov chain. And in fact, even the sampling algorithm that you can construct out of it is not an FPAUS. It doesn't have the, the same bounds that we would acquire from this FPAUS. So what, what we do in this talk is we, we analyze this two by two heat bat chain 
And to do the analysis, we actually work with a, a larger chain again. So we don't actually implement this larger chain. You don't think of implementing it. You think of it as being an abstract mechanism to help you prove that your two by two chain, this nice little chain, is going to be rapidly mixing. So all we want to do is show that a sequence of all these little moves, that if we run it for a polynomial number of steps, then we are really at a random contingency table. We're really at a random one drawn from all the, the state space. So we're going to use as a device this concept of a larger heat bath chain, which is that for a large number of rows, we're going to, we're going to allow ourselves to take all the rows into our heat, into our heat bath and some fixed number of columns. So you would do much, much larger moves. So we're going to be doing, the moves are going to look something like, instead of just examining four cells, we're going to examine all the rows and some constant, but a large constant number of columns where those are drawn randomly from the space of columns. So you would have something We've taken all the rows, there are five of them in this example, and also a large number of columns, which is somewhat larger than the number of rows. And we are going to perform moves on this large subtable, but also constant dimension subtable. And the way we would do it is we would take this m times dm contingency table, we would choose it uniformly at random. So that means we just choose the columns. And then we have some induced, we have the original column sums and we have some induced row sums. And then we are going to choose um, a new table x hat on that large window and we're going to replace all those values in there. Is, is that fairly clear? So it's sort of an ugly thing to do. It's not something we plan to do in practice. It's just a, this something we're going to use as a concept in getting, coming up with the proof of rapid mixing for, for the Markov chain. So we're going to show that this, this, heat, this large heat back chain mixes in polynomial time. And after that, the comparison technique can be applied to show that the smaller chain also mixes rapidly. Are there any questions at this point? So just to put is the size of the table is that's moving, that's changing, that can be changing between moves. The size of the table? Yes. The, the particular set of columns that you would pick out will be changing, but the number that you pick out will not be changing. You have this dm, which is a constant depending on m. So you will choose that number of columns each time, but they'd be different, a different bunch of columns. And because we include all the rows, we don't have the question of choosing the rows for this larger chain, because you take them all at each step. And what you end up with is a constant size table of, of the same, though with different, different cell values and corresponding to different columns. So it'll move around the table, changing different cells, but the window should be the same size. So our technique for proving mixing is this concept of multi-commodity flow, where you think about the graph on all the tape, all these structures. So you've got some huge state space of probably exponential size. And you think about the graph with all these states in it, and then you think about the, the, the moves of the Markov chain among those states. And that defines this conceptual graph of the Markov chain which we then we're going to think about defining for every pair of states in their state space a set of simple paths from x to y on our graph so that we're going to assign flow among those paths to a value of one for each pair of states x, y. So every pair of states, so you take two, every pair of tables you might think of and you're going to use the moves of this large Markov chain to move from x to y. And you could send it all, you, it could be that you just find one path that connects x to y, and you would ship all your flow of value one along that path. For, for this proof, it helps 
not to, it helps to consider alternative paths and ship fractions of the value of one along the different paths. That's how we make the proof go through. And we must do that for every single pair of states in this exponentially large state space, even for pairs of states that are far away. And it's well known that this, this multi-commodity flow approach, um, the, the proof of the multi-commodity flow approach, which is due to Jerome and Sinclair, they show that if no edge is overloaded, then the chain mixes rapidly, which means in polynomial time. So the intuition behind this is this general approach is that, first of all, you must make sure that the length of these paths should not be too long. Because if you can't come up with paths that are short, then that tells you that your chain is probably not mixing rapidly. If it's not possible to come up with short paths between pairs of states, that would be a very good indication that, that it takes a long time to walk from certain states to other parts of the state space. Um, also, no edge should have too much flow on it. And the reason we want that is because, because the multi-commodity flow approach is a way of proving um, it's a way of sort of measuring conductance of, of your state space, where you consider all partitions of the state space into two parts, not necessarily the same size. And you're concerned then with the jumping out probability. You want to, the probability of jumping out from one side of your one half or one part of this partition over to the other side. And it's a good characterization of whether your Markov chain is mixing or not, because if you've got a partition where there's very little probability of jumping out in regard to the relative sizes of these, then it means your chain does not mix rapidly. But if we are able to show that we can set up these paths so that there is no, not too much flow on any edge, that actually implies that the conductance is good for that Markov chain. So that's what the goal is. So, our, so if, you, if you weren't able to do that, if every flow you had had some sort of bad edge that was taking a lot of, a lot of weight through it, it would indicate that sort of there was some partition like that where a, E was playing sort of a strong role in connecting up the two sides of the state space. So, so what we are going to do is, we, we should note that in our Markov chain, for both the 2 by 2 one and the larger one, the probability of walking from W to Z is the same as the probability of walking back from the new table Z to the probability of W. And that's because you have the same probability of picking exactly those columns. And once you've picked exactly those columns, there's the same number of fillings in, either in your original table or the next one. So what Sinclair was able to show was that if you're given a multi-commodity flow, a particular one, if we have laid out our paths for our problem, and then we look at every edge in this hypothetical state-space state graph, and we measure the amount of flow that is sitting along that edge. So this is, this is our, this is, these are the E's. So this is omega, which is exponentially, exponential size. So you would examine each edge, and you have flow laid upon it from different pairs of states being connected up through E. You, you, you add up all the amount of flow that would be sent through E for any pair, initial pair of states which uses that edge as one of its paths. So it's the total flow that comes through E. And then what you're interested in is the relationship between the flow through E and the probability of, of that transition in your Markov chain. And that cannot be too large. So you must be able to spread out your flow so that this is not too huge. And you're allowed to divide by the size of the state space. And if you want to think about why you're allowed to do that, the best way of thinking about it is we take all pairs of states. So we've got like, almost like an omega squared. So we, we, we allow ourselves to divide by one, and then we've got all the edges to cancel out with. So, so that's the approach. So our goal will be to show that this value here is no larger than the size of this state space, that's the omega, times some sort of polynomial extra stuff. 
so that we'll be able to set up some flow that will achieve that goal. So the way we're going to do it, I just try to give a, a vague idea because sort of think this paper as well is not too much fun to read, the, the paper that corresponds to this talk. But the, the, way that he, the, the way that we construct this set of paths is that we, we consider an arbitrary pair of states, an arbitrary pair of contingency tables, and now we must construct a set of paths to go from x to y and spread the flow of value one among them. And what we are going to deliberately go for is the idea, as sort of our intuition, that we are going to think about trying to, we're really trying to come up with an approximation of the idea that we would perhaps consider all shortest paths between x and y and put the appropriate share of flow among each of them, which is nice as an idea but it's not a very constructive, it's, it's nice as an abstract idea, but it's hard to describe that in a constructive way and we need to be able to describe it in a constructive way to get our proof. So our way of approximating it is to think about it as swapping columns in and out. So we have this idealized world that we have got two tables X and Y which differ in most columns probably, if not all, and we're going to think of our, our path as being, the, under the following idea, take an arbitrary permutation of the columns and at each step swap the, the y value in for the original x value to get you from x to y, which will certainly at the end of the, of the swapping you will have a table which is y, no question. So regardless of which permutation you took, you will end up at y. But there's a bit of a problem is that most, of, almost all the tables that we walk through, they're not in our state space at all. They're not contingency tables. So it doesn't satisfy the rules. So we can't do quite that much, but we're going to use um, a construction of, of Morris and Sinclair to sort of approximate this approach. So we're going to use it as a, an approximation. So what we're going to do is we want to, we want to spread the flow along different paths. We're going to use these things called balanced almost uniform permutations of Morris and Sinclair. What they are going to do is they are going to, um, these random permutations, what they're going to do is they're going to make sure that at any point on the swapping out, so we're not going to consider all permutations anymore. We're going to consider a restricted set of permutations. But we are going to make sure that there's a polynomial relationship between the distribution on the permutations and the uniform distribution, the, the, the real one where we considered all permutations. So it's not too different from if we had just chosen out of. But we're also going to get something extra. We're going to get that even though at various stages along our path, we will, not, we will not have a legal contingency table. However, we're going to make sure that the rows are not too much wrong. Now, still we are outside the state space, so according to my definition of multi-commodity flow, that still does not, has not fixed our problem, but we'll be able to see that it will be able to fix our problem because the, the errors will be close enough to allow us to patch things up without changing too much of the table. So, so note that this, this Morris-Sinclair construction only holds for constant m. So if we were to try to extend this, it's no use to solve the general problem. And in fact, I wouldn't want to anyway, because it's, it's not an elegant, it's, it's, not, an, it's not a nice um, construction. So condition two will imply that we don't overload any of the idealized tables. This condition that says even if we're not taking a really random permutation, we're not really taking a truly random order on the columns, we're close to that. We're never overshooting it by a polynomial factor. So we're not going to hurt any table too bad. Um, but also, we have still have the problem of converting these idealized Zs into real contingency tables, and we haven't done that yet, to obtain a flow on the real graph for this heat bat chain. 
But what it, what it does tell, will tell us is that we'll be able to map every idealized table to a true one by changing the small, a small number of columns. And that's about dm over 2. And the way that works is you'll see that some of the row sums are wrong. And all you do is you know that if a row sum is wrong, there is some, if it's too big, then you can identify some cell here which is pretty large. And same for all the other rows. So you identify these large cells and then you take that little block out. And once you've removed that block, you know you're below the row sums in all rows. Okay? So since you're below the row sums in all rows, that means the box you took out has positive row sums when you remove the values that were there. So you can fill it in somehow. So you'll be able to patch it up in a... And not only will we be able to patch it up, because actually that's not good enough. So, so this condition will imply that we can map it to a true contingency table by picking out a small number of columns. But in fact, we must do this mapping in a structured way because we don't want to take every such problem and correct it with the same filling in. So we will actually map it in a structured way where we will consider the values in that cell modulo m squared or something like that, modulo some, some small modulus, and we will use that to define the, the filling in of that table. So we're going to get a, a path of true contingency tables where each of them lies in the space of contingency tables and each of the transitions are a legal step of the heat bath and actually that's, that's where when I said the small number of columns that needed to be changed were about dm over 2. That's, what's allows, that's why we define the heat bath to be dm because we have the patching up along two, two idealized transitions and we have to join those together. So we also have short flow, a short flow paths. So the flow through each Z will be shown to be some large constant times the state space size times some polynomial in N. And the way you see that it depends on the size of the state space is that you think about the fact First of all, you will consider all per so you've got your table that you are with now, and you know that all columns in your current table, say uh, on this edge E that you're considering, you know that all the columns either come from X or come from Y in the idealized setting. So you just have to guess whether they come from X and Y. And that can't, the guessing of whether they come from X and Y, it cancels out with the fact that you randomly chose this random permutation, you have coins to toss for that on the bottom because you only shipped a little bit of flow through it. So it depends just on the x really. So that's where you get the, the sigma rc. And then you show that you can bound the flow on any, so this is in the idealized world, you'll be able to show this result fairly straightforwardly. And then you will be able to use the fact that you didn't map too many of these, I, um, none of the idealized tables no, not too many of them were ever mapped to a true table. And then you show that you have polynomial time mixing for, for, for the heat bath. So, um, so I think I've come to the end of the time, so probably I should stop. But if anyone has questions, it would be nice to hear them. Does it need a starting point? A starting point for the chain? Yeah, so you do need a starting point from the chain. And one way you would choose it is using the rule I showed you um, early on in the talk, the way you had of always constructing one table, which was to use this northwest corner rule. So that can be used to, to choose a starting point for your chain. And it may be that there are better starting points, but that's not something that's very well studied in this area of, of algorithms or probability. It hasn't been very well studied. So I'm going to ask about like, two other approaches and tell me why like, my intuition about that yeah. they seem reasonable is wrong. So one of them is, so when, when like n is high and stuff like that, then it, the integral, the, right, the integer constraint doesn't, isn't so important, right? Like, you know, you 
sort of relax to the reels and you get some small correction factor or something like that. So it seems like you're integrating. <laughs> oh, the integer nature yeah. of it. Yeah. So that's not strictly true. It depends on the table sum. Right. So when mm. that's large. It, that would be need to be very large. Yeah. But so we know the. In Right, or, or you might have to introduce some correction factor, but if you could do that, then it seems like you could just use standard techniques for Monte Carlo integration of convex sets. Is that, is that right? Um, so, so what you describe, it wouldn't just require the table sum to be large. It corresponds more to all the row and column sums being large. But as we saw in the previous work, that case has been solved. So what, 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 the way you show that it works in the case of the large row and column sums is, you move away from the, this, this world that I've been thinking about and you think about it as the lattice points in a many dimensional, not just two dimensional polytope. And in that context, you show that you have a large ball sitting inside your polytope. So what that tells you is, first of all, that the number of tables is not so different to the volume of the polytope itself. And then in terms of sampling, and also, well, when I say not too, not too different, it means within a polynomial factor, okay? But what you can do then, both to sample and to get a better than polynomial factor, is you take your polytope and you dilate it just a little bit along all sides. And you only have to dilate it a very little bit because there's so many points inside it. So you push it out in all directions a little bit. So then that tells you that every, every integer points little cube sits entirely inside that state, inside that dilated polytope. So you can sample using the algorithm for sampling from the real valued, from inside a real valued polytope, and then you just round down to the lower point of your hypercube. So that gives you the sampling. If you're outside, you just throw it away. And um, which is going to be with one some smallish factor, maybe a polynomial factor. But also you can use that sampling on this dilated polytope to refine the approximation for the count. Because you just sample a bunch of these guys and round down to their little integer point. And then you throw it away if it's not one of the real guys. So you're maintaining a probability of the number of those guys which are really inside. So you can get a, an approximation of the count to whatever value you would like it. So that's about half of this cry and dire result on, that we had already. About half of it is doing that. And also it was known when, in the case of all the, all the column and row sums being large. That's exactly what they're doing. Yeah. Instead of this whole Monte Carlo approach, mm -hmm. you were to try an important sampling approach where you were taking um, some other tractably sampled distribution and some reasonably tractable map, you know, projection from that distribution down into, into this one. Like, it's, it would be easy to sample these matrices if you didn't have the row sum constraints, if you just had like the total constraint, right? Or, you know, or element-wise. Oh, yeah, or just the rows, so, say, for yeah, example. And then, you know, map it down using, say, some modification of the, the, the doubly stochastic matrix trick where you just repeatedly normalize the rows and column, you know, enforce the row and column constraints until it converges to, uh, right? And you know, some tweak on that to make it go to integers instead of, instead of reals. So, so, I mean, there's, there's two ways of thinking about that. It's first of all, you can think about what you describe without the doubly stochastic normalization or whatever. You can think about just thinking about tossing coins for the rows and seeing how far you are from the columns. Uh, I think that might work well if the row and column sums are sparse. So in other words, if they're sort of sublinear, let's say. I think you'll probably be able to show in the random model that you can get a, a close approximation. Um, in so, but maybe not for all inputs. I mean, oh, asymptotically almost surely. But the only other approach that sounds a little bit about what you're saying is that Barvinak has been working a lot um, using this, the scaling of the doubly stochastic matrices, but he's working in an exponential size representation of the contingency tables. He's sort of using a relationship with matchings. And so, so there's a whole other area of work being done. Are there any more questions? Uh, if the sum changes to other constraint <coughs> would be the what, what will be happening in the method and the constraints. What kind of other constraint do you mean? Like uh, <coughs> modular m 
some oh. or other constraints. <laughs> so if you were if you were allowing yourself to take the value modulo m, then you have got like a huge state space. It's it's infinitely sized. So the it would be great actually because this question of counting, we know the answer for that one. It would be and infinite. If the states of the member is fixed hmm? to the, the the states of the member is fixed. Uh, it's fixed to uh, to some uh, to some. Uh, it's fixed. I mean, there's uh, n possibilities in the for the member for the for the, the cell values. Yeah, the value in oh. the matrix and uh, yeah, other constraints, not only some. Um. Yeah, I haven't ever thought about that, but that would. Yeah, that would be a slightly different problem. Yeah. I'd, I don't um I don't I don't actually know. I haven't thought about I haven't thought about that problem. Yeah. I mean a special case of this is magic squares actually of Yeah. But then but that's that's not they're only restricted in terms of not being too large in, in our setting. Yeah. If there are no more questions, let's just thank Mary. <laughs> <laughs>